the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed the Bob France Authority. Good morning to you. Thank you for joining us as we get underway at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Thursday, the 29th and penultimate morning of the month of November in the year of our Lord 2018. Coming up on the Bob France Authority, we will be talking with Peter Kersenow. One hour from now, bonus Kersenow for you. If you uh, normally catch Kersenow on Tuesday, he was not here. Uh, he was busy working. I, you know, it's funny, and I, I, I talk about him from time to time without him knowing it, because um, he, he gets embarrassed when I when I praise him face-to-face or or voice-to-voice. But I was just telling Samuel Lockhart, our um, uh, our uh, uh, producer this morning, or excuse me, yesterday, I should say, somehow Kersenow manages to run a law firm, represent his clients, uh, work in in Washington D.C. at the um, uh, Commission on Civil Rights, um, find a way to guest lecture and preach and teach at I can't tell you how many different events. He's going to be at. Uh, Medina County Friends and Neighbors McVan, I think, on Saturday. And not this Saturday, next Saturday morning. Um, he, he accepts those kinds of uh, opportunities all the time and somehow manages to write books. And he's cranked out. He's on his fourth, the fourth uh, uh, and final um, book uh, in his series that started with Target Omega. And he is on his fourth now. The second one is out and available. That is Second Strike. The third one will be out in, like, March. And the fourth one is halfway written. I just don't know how people do it. I don't know how Kersenow manages to find the time to do it. But he was doing one of those other, oh, in addition to hosting the Kersenow Report here, and then joining me on a a regular basis as well. So on Tuesday, he couldn't join me because he was doing one of those other crazy things. Uh, But he will be with us today at 10.05. So very good news for you. So Barack Obama wants to take credit for the energy boom in the United States. Barack Obama says... This was all me, and you can say thank you any time now. I want you to listen 
to the voice of pomposity, arrogance, and dishonesty. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, uh, you know, I, I know we're an oil country, and uh, <laughs> we need American energy, and and by the way, uh, American energy production. Uh, you wouldn't always know it, uh, uh, but you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, and you know that whole suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest get. Uh, that was me, people. I just wanted you to. So, so. Uh, <laughs> It's a little like, you know, sometimes you go to Wall Street and folks would be grumbling about anti-business. And I said, have you checked where your stocks were when I came in office and where they are now? What, what are you talking? What are you complaining about? Just say thank you, please. He's down there in, uh, at Rice University. So, oil country, to be clear. And he's down there telling a bunch of people in oil country that he was responsible for the energy boom in the United States. He said he was responsible for America becoming the biggest oil producer in the world and the biggest gas producer, natural gas. He said, that was me, people. He said, telling this to a bunch of people in a state, in a region of that state, that ought to know better and that do know better, but their politics are going to allow them to stand and applaud and go along with the lie. We say we bring a little truth into this discussion. Yes, U.S. oil production nearly doubled between 2009 when he took office and 2016 when he left. Yes, natural gas production shot up around 50% in that time. But I think anybody who paid attention to the Obama years knows that all of that happened in spite of him, not because of him. He, by his own explanation at the very beginning of that that remark, you heard this part, right? I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords. He signed the Paris Climate Accords, which was aimed at reducing carbon emissions in the United States by reducing the amount of oil production. (laughs) He he tried to slow oil production in the United States. Instead, despite his best efforts, it exploded to the point where we're the leading oil producer in the world. And he says, that was me. That was me. Hey, look over here. Give me some credit. That was me. Uh, This is hysterical. Think about this. That part A is he did his level best. As, as, as the president, to stop oil production. Matter of fact, do you remember what he said? Do you remember, remember what he said when he talked about how um, uh, we can't drill our way out of this problem? We can't drill out of our way out of our energy crisis? And, and you know what we did? We, um, we drilled our way out of the on crisis. That's what we did. Obama, and, and the second part of this, you know, that's from the federal level. He actually tried to stop oil production that he now takes cl- credit for. This is similar, by the way, to him trying to t- take credit for the great unemployment numbers and the great job growth and the great economic revival and the uh, 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 
middle class uh, wage uh, uh, increase and all the, all the other things that that continued to get just phenomenally uh stronger and better under president trump he wants credit for all of that now it's funny he spends all of his days criticizing donald trump but then wants to take credit for all of the donald trump successes it's kind of funny you know boy this this nation is in a terrible place now with donald trump this is horrible what's going on in this country but by the way you know i was responsible for it the good stuff the good stuff he, uh, in addition to the, uh, you know, the federal, his role as, uh, you know, as the commander in chief and as, as the chief executive, obviously, of the federal government, and he did everything he could to, to uh, try to stifle uh, oil production and energy growth uh, when it comes to fossil fuels. What he did not mention is that the growth, the boom in production we're talking about, took place on state and private lands where the Obama administration had no control. He couldn't touch. What was going on there? So what we did on state and private lands is we drilled, 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 just like Sarah Palin once said, drill, baby, drill, and we drilled our way to massive oil production. And Barack Obama opposed it. And now he says, by the way, that oil uh, boom uh, from 2009 to 2016, yeah, that was me. Y'all can just say thank you now. Unbelievable. He did sign legislation, and see, this is the difference between myself and uh, organizations like CNN and MSNBC and others, is I'm always going to be fair, and I'm going to tell the truth. I give credit where it is due, too. At the end of his terms, in 2015, late 2015, he did sign legislation that ended uh, the ban, decades-old ban on crude oil exports. But at the same time he was doing that, which is a positive thing that I can give him credit for, he imposed regulations and pursued international policies aiming to move the world away from fossil fuels in the name name of uh, fighting global warming. Hence his praise of himself for uh, uh, the Paris Climate Accords. He's happy about that. He's very proud of that. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, It's kind of weird, the tepid response there at this event at Rice University. This is at the Rice University Baker Institute uh, hosted event on Tuesday night. The kind of tepid, like, hey, we want to cheer for you because you're our guy. But you know what you're talking about right now is the climate accords, which was supposed to stop us from being able to produce oil. And that's kind of how most of us make our livelihoods here. But yay, we like you. But yeah, can you hear the, the mixed response? From that crowd, because like you, you're probably going down the wrong road here. You're telling everybody you were all about the Paris Climate Accords. You were all about ending um, um, a carbon-based, carbon-based uh, energy. You were trying to stop natural gas, trying to stop uh, oil production, and you were trying to move everything toward windmills and uh, solar energy and so on and so forth. You know that's just cutting our uh, our economic legs out from under us here in Texas. You might really want to think rethink this. And I think that's why he stopped in mid mid sentence. If you think about it, listen to what he said. Listen to how he starts this, and then listen to how he kind of perhaps realizes. I might not be wanting to brag about the Paris Climate Accords here. I better shift my strategy and tell everybody oil increased massively while I was president and uh, take credit for it. Listen. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, uh, you know, I, I know we're an oil country, and he just realized it then. You know, I was proud of the Paris Accords, which we're going to cut all of you guys out because no more oil. 
uh, or vastly decreased amount of American oil production and, and export. Uh, I better shift gears here. Uh, we need American energy, and, and by the way, uh, American energy production. Uh, you wouldn't always know it, uh, uh, but you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, and you know that whole suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy. Uh, that was me, people. I just want you to. So well, that'll get him cheered now. So that's better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like he realized halfway through. It's like, uh oh, I'm saying the wrong thing before the wrong crowd. Yay, oil! Yeah! Woo! It worked. They were dumb enough to applaud him for saying that oil production. Uh, we are the largest oil producers in the world now, and that was me, folks. They'll buy the lie, just anything to get them out of the awkward, hey, I'm proud of the Paris Climate Accords. This guy is hilarious. And so is his party. Here's a great analysis by uh, Hot Air. This Obama taking credit for U.S. oil production, which he tried to stifle, would be like Mitch McConnell trying to take credit for the Iran nuclear deal. Because it happened while he was in charge of the Senate. The nuclear deal happened in spite of Mitch McConnell's opposition to it. Mitch McConnell would never be dumb enough to try to take credit for it. He didn't want it. Who would want to take credit for the Iran nuclear deal? Nobody would. It happened while somebody was on, somebody was on the job against their best efforts. That's oil production. It happened in the United States while Obama was on the job, even though he did everything he could to stifle it. That's, that's the bottom line. This is the same guy who said, again, early in his presidency about rising gas prices. You remember in 2009, 2010, when we were paying three bucks a gallon? Sometimes higher than that in some circumstances. Do you remember when in Cleveland it was, you know, three, three twenty-five, three fifty a gallon? And out in California and places like that, it was six, six seventy-five a gallon. Do you remember this? And everybody said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? He said, we can't drill our way out of the problem. It's not about more oil. Well, we drilled our way out of the problem. That's the bottom line. If you look into the numbers on how all the oil from 20, 2009 to 2017 was produced, you may notice something. It had nothing to do with Barack Obama. The vast majority of increase in U.S. oil production occurred on private land, land that government controls, U.S. government controls. It was a different story. The EIA reported in 2015 that while U.S. oil and gas production overall were surging, production of natural gas on federal lands declined. Oil production about the same level as it was in his first years in office. So think about that for just a minute. And oh, by the way, if we want to take this one step further, not until Trump was sworn in, in uh, inaugurated in uh, January of 2017, did production on federally owned lands really take off. So this guy wants to take credit for energy production in America, particularly energy uh, produced by fossil fuels, oil, and natural gas. He wants to take credit for it when he did his level best to stop it. This is the American Democrat Party. He is the American Democrat hero. He is still their, their bellwether. He is still their, their standard bearer. He is still carrying their mail. He is who they turn to. When they needed a boost in certain of those uh, uh, House races and Senate races in the past uh, uh, election that just ended, uh, they turned to Barack Obama. He is still the guy, and he is still as dishonest, deceptive, duplicitous as he ever was. And I hope everybody knows it.
It's 921. We'll get a time out now and uh, take a look at our traffic. Our phone lines are open until 10 o'clock. At 10.05, Peter Kirstenau will join us, but I will take your calls at 216-901-0945 now. 888-281-1110. Either one of those gets you into the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Now the Bob France Authority continues on AM 1420. The answer, Peter Kirsten, and I will join me in about 40 minutes. Uh, now we have a whole bunch of people who want to join us at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Energy in America is uh, in a good place right now. Uh, oil prices are good. Gas prices are good. The people down in Texas are happy with the amount of ex- uh, oil production uh, that, uh, we are exp- uh, that we are doing and that we are exporting. And Barack Obama wants credit for all of it. <laughs> despite the fact that he did everything he could to stop it. Let's go to uh, Fairview Park and say good morning to Mark right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Mark. You're on the air. Go ahead. Morning, Bob. Uh, this, uh, this is all I need to hear first thing in the morning from this guy. But, uh, you know, I don't <laughs> think he could stand the progress uh, that Trump has been making. You know, I just don't think he can he can handle it. And, uh, you know, you, you can have a government shutdown, but things such as oil, you know, are going to carry on exploration, et cetera, because... That's what the business is all about, you know, progress. And, uh, you know, you have to look back. I don't remember trying to think back. I don't think he ever really pursued the pipeline. Uh, he lost half a billion dollars. No, not on only did market. he not pursue it, not, not only did he not pursue it, uh, Mark, to your point, he specifically blocked it. Every time he was given an opportunity to green light it, especially after all of the environmental studies were done and the, the impact on the environment was going to be negligible to build that Keystone XL pipeline, he still said no, uh, more studies because he knew doggone well it would tick off his liberal glo- or, uh, solar and wind uh, power base. That's, that's what he was all about. And, th- and there you have it. And the guy lost, he lost a half a billion dollars on that one solar company that went bankrupt in, in That's about, right. about two, about two weeks later. But what are the, uh, uh, another little topic that always bothered me. I had a neighbor and when he captured Ben Laden, oh, Obama got him. Obama got him. And I'm looking at the guy. I'm ex-military too. And these guys that went in there, it's just, it's just an extraordinary mission. But, uh, I just asked him, I said, what helicopter was he on? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, well, you're, you're first of all, Mark. I do, I do, I know exactly, and you're 100 percent right. I said the same thing at the time. I'm proud that our military, uh, yes, at the direction of the commander in chief and at the direction of the Pentagon, continued the efforts that started obviously on September 12th, 2001. Uh, and that is to find this SOB and get him. It started and it continued all the way up, yes, until 2008. He makes it sound like, well, we stopped looking under George Bush. And I restarted that effort and then we, we got him. And it's because of, of, of my efforts. No, th- there were sources that were mined by our intelligence agencies, by our military that were 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 you know embedded in various parts of of Pakistan and Afghanistan and in other regions around uh, the Middle East, they've been hunting for 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 Osama bin Laden for years, and it wasn't a new effort. And it finally bore fruit. And hey, we found him. The ongoing effort that you walked in on, by the way, when you were elected in two thousand eight, Mister President, the ongoing effort is bearing fruit now. We have found him. What do you want us to do? 
and Obama gave the order. Good, but and that's great. I'm glad he did. Congratulations. But let's stop acting like that was a tough call. Can anyone imagine a president saying, "You found him? You got him? He's where? At a house in Pakistan? Really? No. Let's just keep watching." Who would have said that? Of course they said, if you can get him, get him. And that's what was supposed to happen. But you're right. He is absolutely, completely furious. He is livid over the incredible economic growth of this country once he left. This this country limped along, this economy, at 1.5% growth for the last, I don't know, 20 full quarters of, of the Obama presidency. It limped along, and when he left office and, and uh, Trump started deregulating and Trump started giving uh, tax breaks uh, to the, the American people and to American corporations, suddenly corporations started just spewing out more production and hiring more people, and the economy, boom, in the first six quarters of the Trump administration, uh, grew at 3%. In the last year, 4.5%, 4.3, let's be precise, sorry, I don't want to overstate it. And it drives him nuts. It drives the first black president who saw unemployment among black Americans rise every year of his presidency. That black unemployment is at an all-time low under the presidency of his successor. That kills him. It's driving him nuts that everything he tried to do, or didn't try to do, everything he should have done and didn't, is being done under Donald Trump. So he's sitting there watching all that happen and going, well, um, you know, oil and gas production, we're we're at all-time high, and we're the the, the leaders of the world during during my terms. That was me. That was me. Clap for him. Clap. Clap for him. Clap for me. that That was me. No, it wasn't you. Stop trying to coattail the success of your successor. Matter of fact, I like that. President Trump truly puts the success back in the word successor. We're back after this. Give. Nine thirty four now the Bob France Authority continuing. On AM 1420, the answer phone lines open at 216-901-0945, If you would like to get in, you can also uh, tweet to me or Facebook comment to me at France Radio, F-R-A-N-T-Z. On Twitter and Facebook, France, F-R-A-N-T-Z, radio. All one word, no spaces, no underscores. Uh, and I will read the best comments on the radio. To the border, before I go back to the to the phones, Border Patrol arrested an MS-13 member who was had infiltrated the caravan. You'll never see pictures of the MS-13 people because they are not the women and children who have been gassed by the Trump-led Border Patrol out there to cause harm and do serious damage to women and children who are just seeking uh, a refuge from the horrific existence in which they found themselves in their home countries. This is all just women and children. If they found and deported one MS-13 gang member, how many others are there that have not yet been found? 
Agents arrested Jose Villabolos or Villalobos, Villalobos, I guess is what I would say, Joe Bell, 29 years old, shortly after 6 p.m. east of the Calexico port of entry on the U.S. side of the border, according to uh, Customs and Border Protection in a statement. During questioning at El Centro Station, the Honduran citizen confessed he is an active member of MS-13 and was going to enter the country illegally after traveling to the U.S. with the caravan of thousands of other migrants. If they found one, how many others are they not finding? I hope they squeeze this guy and do whatever they have to do to get more information out of him to find out how many others are with him or spread out amongst that thousands of members' uh, strong caravan before they deport him back to Honduras. And this is very serious. The president said, by the way, that in that caravan, you're going to find MS-13, you're going to find Middle Eastern terrorists, you're going to find all kinds of very bad people, bad guys. He's right, of course. And now they just found one, identified him, got an admission, and now he's going to be scheduled for deportation. But what about all of the other ones? This must be stopped. Back to the phones as promised, 216-901-0945. Jim, calling from West Park. Hey, Jim, it's been a while. How are you, sir? Good. Uh, President Donald Trump, uh, the Lone Ranger, is unfit for the President of the United States office because he can't and wouldn't lie to the American people like all the other administrations since Jimmy Carter and the gay Jew boy Kissinger. Well, wow, okay, I'm kind of glad you dropped off after that line because I can't have that. That's ridiculous, and I will not tolerate that type of language um, and expression on this program. Um, To your point, yes, he would. You don't think Donald Trump would lie? Donald Trump has lied as president. Donald Trump has said things that are not true, most likely with his knowledge that they were not true. Let's not make any mistake here. Donald Trump is no saint. Donald Trump is no choir boy. Donald Trump is no altar boy. We didn't elect him to be one, by the way. If you think he's above dishonesty and lying, then you forgot the part about him being a politician. Yes, he is a politician. That whole thing about Donald Trump is not a politician, it's what we love about him, blah, 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 is over. You realize that, right? Once you run a campaign for president, once you win a campaign for president, once you become the president, and once you campaign on the stump dozens and dozens, I wish I knew how many times, for other members of your party, as he did leading up to these midterm elections, you're doggone good at politicking. Yes, he's a politician. And yes, politicians lie. I'm just going to lay it out there. Politicians lie. If there's been one born that doesn't lie about something, then uh, I haven't met him. I haven't met him. They do. He has. To that end, I will say this. I judge the president, this president and all presidents, quite frankly, on more than that. I judge him on results. If he is lying about things that bring up dev- bring uh, bring about devastating results for the United States, we're going to have a major problem with that. If he's lying about things and still delivering great results to the United States in the form of some of the things that I talked about last segment with respect to the economy and energy and unemployment and taxation, uh, it said the rebuilding of the military, our strength, et cetera, et cetera. Then you know it's kind of like I don't like it, but I'm not going to fixate on it. 
and I'm not going to focus on it. So that's just, that's just the nature of the beast. When you are a politician and you are trying to win votes from people who have very, very different views of the world, you can't be honest with both of them. I'm, I'm just laying it out, okay? And this isn't about just Trump. I'm just responding to Jim. When you are trying to get votes from people who have a conservative mindset, you're going to say some things to them in a certain way. When you are trying to get votes from people who are a less conservative mindset, you're going to change the way you say things and what you say to appeal to them. And yes, that might actually lead to, gasp, dishonesty, because you may have felt better about the first thing to the first group. And then when you're talking to people in the middle, you're going to probably spin it a different way. Yes, politicians lie, and leaders lie, and presidents lie. It, there is a matter of presentation. To that end, let me, I want to share this with you too. This was an absolutely stunning story that I came across yesterday. Stunning because it was not stunning at all. It was not surprising at all. How many times do you recall listening to Hillary Clinton when she was speaking in front of an audience of minorities, changing her tone, changing her dialect? trying to sound southern or trying to sound black. How many times have you heard that, right? I ain't no ways tired. She doesn't speak that. When she speaks to her elitist New York liberal audiences, she speaks the Queen's English. When she's speaking before black audiences, she tries to sound like she's a black person so so that they know that she's down with their struggle. There's a new study that was just done by Yale and Princeton, elitist Ivy League liberal organizations, right? Institutions. When liberals encounter and address minorities, this is what the study from Yale and Princeton found. Again, these are liberal educational institutions of higher learning. When liberals encounter and address minorities, they tend to change their language and present themselves as being less competent in order to to be able to reach the minorities at what they perceive to be their level. Conservatives use the same vocabulary no matter what the race of their audience this is not a joke. This, this literally came down yesterday. I was going to bring it up anyway, and now's a good time to do it. Yale and Princeton researchers found that when white Democrat presidential candidates and self-identified liberals played down their competence when speaking to minorities, using fewer words that conveyed accomplishments and more words that expressed warmth, On the other hand, there were no significant differences in how white conservatives, including Republican presidential candidates, spoke to white audiences versus minority audiences. According to the study's abstract quote, white liberals self-present less competence to minorities than to other whites. That is, they patronize minorities, stereotyped as having lower status and being less competent. I'm shocked because, not because of the, 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 the subject matter, the content in the study. I think we all knew this was the case, but I'm shocked that two liberal universities like Yale and Princeton would actually conduct the study and publish its findings. 
This is this is blowing the whistle on liberalism and how they see African Americans and other ethnic minorities in this country, something we have seen for a long time now. They don't think minorities are smart enough to understand them if they speak in their normal white language. We know they think this about minorities. That's why they oppose voter ID laws. We can't expect black people to figure out how to get a driver's license or a state ID. You know how hard this is for them? That's literally what they have been arguing for years. Voter identification would have a disproportionate effect on black people. It's hard for them. Is there anything more racist than that? Is there anything less racist than saying all Americans are competent and able to achieve identification? This isn't disproportionate. This isn't trying to disenfranchise a race. This is they the left, the white liberals have thought so poorly of black Americans for so long, they can't even talk to them the same way they talk to other people. Why do you think they 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 actually take pride? They take pride in record high food stamp appropriation during the Obama years. Look at us. We're helping all those poor black people who can't make it on their own. We know they can't get jobs. We know they can't sustain themselves. We give them all of this free stuff, and then they vote for us to say thank you. They have a terrible view of black America, of minority America. They think that it's incapable They think that black America, that minority America, is not able to look out for itself. And so they have to look out for them. And it's true in how they address them. Cindy Dupree, assistant professor of organizational behavior at Yale School of Management, said she was surprised by the findings of the study. How? How? Why? Which sought to discover how well-intentioned whites interact with minorities. It was kind of an unpleasant surprise, she says, to see this subtle but persistent effect. Even if it's ultimately well-intentioned, it could be seen as patronizing. Of course it's patronizing. If you walk up to one person and speak in your normal vernacular, with your normal vocabulary, your normal tone, your normal level of, disc- level of, of, of interaction with people, and then you walk up to somebody else that you perceive to be as dumber than you, you, dumb, you dumb down, at least liberals do, they dumb down their, their language. Because, well, this person can't possibly understand all of the things that I'm saying in my highbrow manner. I will dumb down my language and my tone and try to be more warm rather than as normal and normally analytical and clinical as I would be. That's racism! But the same very, the very same study at Yale and Princeton found that conservatives don't. They don't patronize. They expect that a black audience can understand what they're saying just as well as a white audience can. And why would they think that? Because it's true. And to think otherwise is to assume, to have a bias, an inherent bias against that audience, thinking it can't possibly keep up with my uh, highly intellectual mind. I will have to speak down to them on their level. To think anything other than this audience can understand me just as well as this audience can 
is to be racist. The study flies in the face of the standard talking points of the political left, that white conservatives are racist while raising questions about whether liberals are perpetuating racial stereotypes about blacks being less competent than whites. The paper is slated for publication in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, first examined speeches by Republican and Democrat presidential candidates to mostly white and then mostly minority audiences dating back 25 years. So this isn't all just about Hillary. I used her as an example. Ms. Dupree said Princeton Susan Fisk analyzed the text for words related to competence, such as assertive and competitive, and words related to warmth, such as supportive and compassionate. The team found that Democrat candidates used fewer competence-related words in speeches delivered to mostly minority audiences than they did in speeches delivered to mostly white audiences. The difference wasn't statistically significant in speeches at all by Republican candidates. Dupree noted that Republicans also gave fewer speeches to minority audiences, but when they did, they spoke the same way. This is an amazing revelation. If you're not paying attention to liberals... It was amazing to the, to the authors of the study and to those who conducted the study. Oh, my gosh, this is very surprising. But if you just listen to, to liberal, elite white people, elitist, rather, elitists, white people, this is how they treat minorities. Like, they can't care for themselves. They can't understand us at our level. We'll dumb it down to theirs. And they can't take care of themselves. We're going to give them extra stuff. We can't expect them to achieve at, a, at the same level as, as us, so we're going to give them affirmative action, going to give them points just because, you know what? Come on, you can't expect him to score as high as this other white guy over here. He's black. He gets eight extra points just for his color. Now we're even. That's, that's racism. And that's what the American left is. It is so patronizing and and embarrassingly condescending to minority America and to hear us tell it it falls on deaf ears because we're the racists according to the left according to the media we conservative minded people who see everybody the same are the racists come to find out two liberal universities combined in a study that actually proved it is liberal white people who are the racists? It's nine fifty. Uh, I welcome your thoughts on that as well. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five triple eight two eight one eleven ten on the Bob France Authority. It is 9.56. Now the Bob Brant's Authority continues on AM 1420, The Answer. Peter Kersenow uh, will be joining us. Uh, Peter and I plan to talk mostly about what's going on at the border with this caravan because uh, he has not yet been able to speak on the issue of uh, pepper spray and uh, tear gas and uh, rushing the border and everything that happened on Sunday. So Peter will talk about that with us uh, and also about border funding, border wall funding and so on and so forth. But uh, being an African-American, I'm going to ask him about this uh, study as well for me. As a matter of fact, uh, Samuel, Pastor Samuel, Pastor, Chaplain, Airman Samuel Lockhart is our producer. He is all of the above, an Air Force veteran, and he's a chaplain as well and a pastor and uh, and a black man. And uh 
Samuel, how do you feel about that when you see this study and things like this? And have you noticed it in your life? Uh, and I, maybe you don't know the politics of everybody that speaks to you, but this this revelation by Yale and Princeton that liberal white people talk down to black people because they don't think black people or minorities in general, perhaps they also mean um, Latinos or Hispanic Americans, but they talk down to them because they don't think that they can keep up with them in their incredibly active brains. What do you think of that? Well, I first noticed it in the 1990s with um, then-candidate Clinton Yeah, um, when he did it. And um, it was, you mean America's first black president, right? That's yes, what they—that's uh, yes. what they called him, yeah. Right, playing the saxophone and sunglasses and all that. On Arsenio, <laughs> yes. Um, Which, by the way, I loved. I have to admit that that looked cool. You know, it did. You know, it, it worked. It worked on a lot of people. I was very, very politically unactive at that or inactive at that time. I was just pretty much, you know, I didn't care. I didn't study uh, politics at the time. But when you think of normal, stodgy presidential candidates, you know, stuffed suits, and then you see this guy coming out and putting on those sunglasses and wailing away, I I liked it. It, it appealed to a lot of people. I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought there, but I actually liked that, and I think it won him a lot of votes just because uh, he looked, you know, like he wasn't a, you know, a stuffed suit. But go on. And it did, but his campaign speeches... And sitting in Korea and overseas and listening to this on AFN, you kind of like I'm like, what are we? What is he doing? And so it it was kind of bothersome at the time. And then you you just started. We started noticing it, like I said, for me for the last twenty years. But it was it it went over the top when candidate Hillary Clinton made the comment about pulling out some hot sauce out of her purse. Oh yeah. It, it was it was over then because it's like okay we didn't get gotten blatant with um, this this stereotype that we're trying not to portray you you know you're thinking you're funny or she made another comment about being late so we, we we've heard this we noticed it and what uh, what about what about crazy Uncle Joe too you remember what he said uh, uh, about Obama when uh, uh, in in the primary when. When Obama won, uh, or no, I'm sorry, it wasn't. I'm sorry, that was Bill. That wasn't Uncle Joe Biden. No. Was it a Bill who said to Hillary a few years ago, this guy would have been going to get us coffee about Barack Obama? Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. that was Bill. For a, second, I, for a second, I thought that was Biden. But no, Biden had a couple of other slips. Biden is the one who said that uh, Republicans want to put you all back in chains. Well, and the other piece was um, this boy needs to wait his turn. That, that statement was made. That's another one. Yeah. But so, it, 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 it's really amazing, and these are the people that are given credit as being the, the, the caretakers of the black population in this country. They're the ones who are looking out for us. That's why they get 90% of the black vote all the time, and yet when you listen to their words, and even in this study, how they speak to black audiences, they don't think very much of black people at all. But, and a lot of that's also done by some of our black leaders. Uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson, whom I love, but he had some comments about then candidate Barack Obama because he didn't think it was he was ready. So it's 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 not just one side. It's it's that mindset of the elites in the party who thinks that the rest are not ready. Yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's that's very accurate, Samuel. And I'm glad I asked you. It's uh, it's good to have a man of your experiences uh, uh, to to bounce things off of. Thank you, my friend. It's 10 o'clock. We'll get out now so we can come back in with Peter Kirsten. who will join us next right here on AM 1420. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.